but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. start out this morning by telling you a, a little story. It's entitled Losing Power and Our Minds by Sarah Lee Perel. And I think it's something that, that we can all relate to that, that we all probably understand. She starts out this way. My husband, Bob, shook the remote control. It's not working, he said. Well, it was storming and we had no electricity. This will be hard to accept, I said softly. The remote control doesn't work because the TV is dead. He wouldn't look at me. I touched his arm. You and your dearly beloved TV will be reunited someday when the lights will shine down upon you both again. He whispered, but it looks like it's just sleeping. Sweetheart, it's an empty shell. I kissed his forehead. The inside, the inside, the parts that really matter aren't alive. Dejected, he dragged himself to the kitchen. No electricity means we can't eat. We're going to die. Think about our ancestors, Bob. Exactly, he replied. They're all dead. He began gorging himself. I can't let this food go bad. To which I replied, there's no electricity in that cookie jar, Bob. I grabbed his shoulders. Pull yourself together. My ancestors didn't need electricity to eat. They always had deli platters, even in the desert. No offense, but you're insane. How do you think they survived schlepping around sand dunes for 40 years? They cured cold cuts, they smoked salmon, and they pickled herring. Where would they find salmon and herring in the desert? Where anybody does, in the coaster section. So we settled on heating Dinty Moore beef stew on the camping stove. I'll tell you, we've both, been, we've both wanted an excuse to stuff ourselves on this for a decade. Frankly, it was scrumptious. After eating, Bob was bored and whining about having nothing to do. Honey, I said, what would you like to do with your best friend right now? He then smiled a huge smile, put his arms way out, gave the dog a gigantic hug, and grabbed her leash. Snowstorms make me think of childhood. We'd have sleepouts where we'd drag mattresses in front of the fireplace and hold flashlights under our chins, making funny faces and telling silly, scary stories about escaped prisoners who had hooks instead of hands. We'd collapse in goofy laughter until we'd finally fall asleep, hearing only the crackling of the fire and the gust of wailing winds against the thick glass panes. It was then that I realized we could create new memories, every bit as unforgettable and sweet as the old ones. And so that is what we did, with pillows and blankets in front of the fire. When Bob was asleep, I quietly turned off all the lights that had been on when the power went out, so that for this one lovely evening, nobody would know when the lights came back on and we could languish in rare stunning moments of darkness, of firelight, and the breathtaking nearness of each other. It, it was then that I realized we could create new memories every bit as unforgettable and sweet as the old ones. You know, some of you here this morning and some of you that are listening online, uh, you're thinking just that as you enter into the year 2014. You're, you're wanting to see some new things. You're wanting to, to experience some, 
some new memories, some, some new lasting memories in your life. Maybe, maybe you know, you've made some goals for 2014. And I, I think goals are a good thing. I think we need to set goals. I think we need to revisit them so that we don't just sort of wander around in life aimlessly. Um, maybe, maybe some of your goals are to be healthier. It's, it's to lose some weight or to get more education. Maybe, maybe you've set some goals in your relationships. You're going to love more and fight less. Maybe you are looking for a husband or a wife and you really feel like this is going to be the year. You know, those are some good goals. Those are some, some good hopes to have. And I believe everybody should set goals. But, but this, this thought of creating new memories, every bit as unforgettable and sweet as the old ones. It, it's been ringing in my ears this week. What, what would that be like? What is that like? And, and I think that's essentially where we see Christianity in, in the time of history that we begin looking at here in the book of Acts this morning. The people in Jerusalem were, were standing at the edge of something new. They had no idea what was going to happen. They had no idea what was coming, what, what was going to be next for them. Now, I'm sure that there were people that had certain expectations of what that next year might bring, but most, quite honestly, didn't have a clue. It was a mystery, a fantastic mystery. They were going to experience things that were out of the ordinary, and they were going to experience ordinary things in a very extraordinary way. That's, what, that's where we are every day when we are living in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We experience ordinary things. We experience extraordinary things. And we experience ordinary things in extraordinary ways. And as we live life, God is creating new memories in our lives. In, in fact, He is creating us new as we live our life. And as a part of His church, we are experiencing the same work in our lives today as the first Christians did in their lives a little over 2,000 years ago. You see, He hasn't stopped working. We're not, we're not reading today events of the history that happened back then and we're, we're, we're going to learn lessons from those things. No, we're looking at those things and we're actually living those things in our own lives today in this timeline. Turn with me to the book of Acts, if you would. It's the, it's the fifth book of the New Testament. And uh, people have struggled to give this book a title through the years. Uh, some of your translations may say, uh, the Acts of the Apostles. Well, it's, it, there are Acts of the Apostles, but it's not the Acts of the Apostles. Um, some have, have wanted to name it the Acts of the Church. Well, it's not the Acts of the Church either. You see, the book of Acts, it's the Acts of God. It's a, it, it's a, again, it, it's, it's God working in the course of history. Now, who can tell me who wrote the book of Acts? Really loud. Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts. Luke also wrote the book of Luke. And the book of Luke and the book of Acts, if you read them, especially um, the, the last chapter of Luke and the first chapter of Acts, you can see that, that they weren't necessarily two books to stand individually, but they're two books to stand together. Um, and we'll, we'll see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, in fact. Um, so Acts is a, 
the second part of a two-part work. It's, it's a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. And, and uh, it's interesting that the book of Luke and the book of Acts make up 25% of the New Testament uh, in volume. Not in number, but in volume of, of written words. Luke was a Gentile. He was a man of science. He was a doctor, a physician, and he was a very close friend of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul and Luke spent a lot of time together. Uh, now, we know that Luke was a, a doctor because Paul mentions him in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, when he says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. See, Luke did extensive research and interviewed many, many eyewitnesses to the account of, of Jesus' life from, from his conception until his crucifixion. Um, in the opening verses of the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us that he carefully investigated these things. He, as a Greek, I think he was, he was very particular in his study and his investigation. And as a doctor, he was very detailed in the things that he wrote and the things that he investigated. He experienced firsthand the beginning of the church. And then we can also, one other, uh, one other observation before we continue is that, that there are times in some of Paul's letters that he wrote where he says, we, he refers to we and us. And, and, and in most of those instances, unless he specifically is with someone, like when he and, and Silas were in prison, uh, they, they think, most scholars think that he is referring to Luke, that he and Luke spent a large amount of time together in ministry. And so Luke has many firsthand accounts of, of Paul. And even though Luke is writing about the history of Christianity, we need to remember that it's not just history. You know, this is, this is way more beneficial and way more important than that history that you guys are learning in high school and middle school. Or maybe some of you college students. That sort of stuff, those dates and those, those events and those sorts of things, um, I, there are some things that we can learn from those. But, but do we really? We learn those so that we can spit them out on a test, right? And, and get a passing grade in the class and we move on. Um, this, this history that we are getting from Luke isn't about just events that happened one day. They are about the work of God in his people. And, and he's doing that exact same work today in your life and in my life. Ten years, 20 years down the road, you could write about your experiences with the, with the father. And you would see that that He is working in your history just as He was working in the history of the church when it first began. Uh, let's start in Acts chapter 1. In verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus. Let's stop there. In my former book, he's referring to the book of Luke. Theophilus is likely a specific person, although Theophilus means one who loves God. So, um, at the least for us here this morning, it's written to us. If you're here this morning and you love God, you are, in essence, Theophilus. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day He was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles He had chosen. Very uh, similar intro uh, very similar to the intro in the book of Luke. And very similar event. Well, it's the same event, the ascension of Christ. Um, he describes it at the end of the, 
of his book of Luke, and he describes it at the beginning of the book of Acts to tie them together. Um, basically, our first point this morning in our notes is that Jesus is the center. Jesus is the center of all that Luke wrote, of all that the, the gospel writers wrote, of all that Paul wrote, of, of the Bible. Jesus is the center. And I know that I can sound like a broken record here on Sunday mornings with all of this talk about Jesus. But isn't that the point? <laughs> he is the one. Like sheep that go astray, we, can, we, we have to be reminded of this constantly. You know, because sometimes we live like we are the center of the universe. We, we work at our job like our job is the center of life. Or, or we view relationships as, as that is the center. All of your time, all of your effort, all of your money, all of your prayers revolve around that relationship or that job or whatever it is, that becomes the center. And if that is the center of your life, you are going to be disappointed. If you live the year 2014 with you as the center or your job as the center, you will enter the year 2015 disappointed. Because if our lives aren't centered on Jesus, then we are aimless. We are like a ship without a rudder or an airplane with no pilot, ready to crash and burn. Uh, Luke says all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Luke says it's about Jesus. He is the center. His actions, what he did, and his words, what he taught, what he said, and that Jesus began to do and to teach. Both are very important. John Calvin calls them calls this a holy knot. You can't have one without the other. You can't just be, and there are people in our world today who think this way. They, they're all about what Jesus did. They're, they're happy with the healing that He did. And they're, they're happy with the fact that He, he fed the hungry. And, and that He cared for the sick and the poor. They're happy that He stood up against the religious establishment of His day. But when you start talking about some of the things that Jesus said and that he taught, they begin to have a problem. You see, Jesus said, I am. I and the Father are one. He claimed to be God. And there are those that say, that's, that can't be right. He was just a person like us. Well, that's not what Jesus said. And he said things like, no one comes to the Father except by me. Wow, now that's pretty narrow-minded, isn't it? You know, fine with all of the healing and all of the miracles and all of that He did, but, but to claim that, that He is the only way to get to heaven? Now, wait a minute. That's, that's a bit narrow-minded. But that's what Jesus said. You know, it makes me think of a conversation I had with my children when we were going through the gate leaving Denver International Airport one afternoon. We went to pick somebody up. I don't remember who it was. And we tried to rush in and rush out before the time limit, you know. There's, there's the, the minimum amount of time that you can be there. You pull in the parking lot, you run and you get the person and then you come back. And uh, this was before they had that parking area out, out on the outside where you could actually wait until they called and then you could drive in and you never did have to park at all. Well, when we got to the, to the gate where we had to pay, 
you know, it's like, I don't know, four bucks for under 60 minutes, and then it goes like to 10 for an hour to two hours or something like that. And, and we got there at 62 minutes. And my kids just thought it was, it was just so unfair that we were only over two minutes, right? I mean, how can they charge us the full price if it's only two minutes? Well, because that's the way it is. It's not narrow-minded. That's just the facts. That's just the rules. That's the way, it, that's the way it's been laid out. It's, if you come in under 60 minutes, you're good. If it's 60 minutes, 10 seconds, guess what? Well, that's just narrow-minded. No, that's just the way it is. And that's what Jesus is saying here. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's not narrow-minded. That's just the way it is. And, and, if, and if you get through life and, and you don't believe that, you say, well, it just, that's just narrow-minded. When you die and you get to the other side, you're going to wish you had recognized that, that Jesus wasn't being narrow-minded. He was being loving. And He was communicating the truth. We need to be ready. He, he confronted sin. He didn't con- Jesus didn't condone sin. Jesus didn't, didn't say, well, that's okay. The woman that, that was brought before, the, before Jesus, you know, they were going to stone her. And, and Jesus said, you know, he who has uh, not committed any sin, you, you, you go ahead, you cast the first stone. Well, of course, nobody did because everybody sins, right? And, and then, but then what did He say to the lady? Well, see you later. Have a nice day. No, he didn't say that at all because he had sinned. And he said, go and sin no more. What you're doing is wrong. You need to not do that anymore. But I'm not going to kill you for it. Go and sin no more. He didn't condone it. He called sin a sin, a spade, a spade. And he is the center of all things. What he did and what he said, creator and shepherd, sovereign and king, Lord and rescuer, to him we owe everything what we have, who we are, where we live, our family, our children, our friends, our possessions. He is the giver of all of those things. He is the center. And we need to make sure that that's where He is. At the center. So as we live in the year 2014, let's put ourselves in the right place in regards to Jesus at His feet. Humbly, Serving Him. Surrendering ourselves to all that He did and said. Making decisions based on what He teaches us. Not just worshiping and, and, and proclaiming hallelujah about the things that He did and He does, but also the things that He says and that He will say. Jesus is the center. And then Luke goes on in verse 3. After His suffering. Now those three words right there entail the majority of the Gospel of Luke, don't they? After his suffering, Jesus, there's a lot of information in those three words. When people read those three words, they would recognize that Jesus was turned over to the Romans in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was betrayed by one of his very own for some money. He was brutalized. I mean brutalized. He was found guilty for something that he didn't do. Really, he was found guilty for nothing. Yet he was in fact turned over to the executioner for crucifixion. And they continued to brutalize him in this process. They shoved a thorn, a, a, a crown of thorns on his head. 
They beat him. They stripped him naked. They drew lots for his clothes. And then they forced him to carry the object of his death down the street to Golgotha, also known as Calvary, or the place of the skull. And I looked at pictures of this and I intended to show you one this morning, but I forgot. This hill in which Jesus was crucified on exists. And it looks exactly... Mick, you've probably been there. It looks exactly like a skull, doesn't it? You stand there and you look at it and it looks like a skull. The perfect place to kill people. And that's exactly what they did to Jesus. Because we're looking at real history. This really happened. He was crucified. He died. A spear was thrust through his side to be sure that he was dead. He was then taken down and he was buried in a tomb. And Luke describes many of these details surrounding Jesus' crucifixion in the first part of his work. And then he continues in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. He, Jesus, showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to imagine something with me. And I hope you don't find this morbid. I think at the end you'll understand the illustration. But I want you to imagine going to a funeral. And you know this person. And when you come in the doors of the church, you see the casket there and it's open. And this person, you, you observe them lying, lifeless, without breath in this casket. You see the casket closed. You see it wheeled to the front of the church. There's a service. You follow the hearse to the cemetery after the, after the, uh, the funeral. You watch the casket being lowered into the ground and covered over. And then for the next day or so, you, you have fond memories and you have sadness about this person that no longer is living. But then, the night of the third day, there's a knock at your door. And you go to the door and you open it and you cannot believe your eyes because there standing before you is the dead guy that was in the casket alive. And, and when you finally kind of gather yourself because you've concluded that you're not hallucinating and it wasn't because your wife didn't cook the chicken you know, enough, that, that this person is actually standing in front of you. You invite them in to, to come in and, and dine with you and and they sit down at the table and, and, they, and this person eats with you. And, and you share stories. And at the end of, of the meal, you, you walk them to the door and before this person who you saw dead, who is now alive, you give them a big hug. And they walk out that door. Now, in your mind, is that person alive? Yes. Why? How do you know? Because you've seen them with your eyes. You heard them with your ears and you touched them with your hands. And, and, and Luke describes right here, he says, for 40 days this happened. Jesus showed himself to people. Thomas touched him. He cooked meals. He ate meals with people. They had conversations. There was no doubt in people's mind that Jesus was in fact alive. He was dead. We saw him die. But he is now alive. That's exactly what everyone that came face to face with Jesus after his crucifixion experienced. Holy cow. He's alive. 
And, and the disciples, as we see in the end of our passage today, watched him ascend into heaven. Because he is alive. Now, I don't know what that would have looked like when he ascends into heaven. I kind of picture it as, you know, you, you know when your kids get a helium balloon at a restaurant or something, and inevitably what happens to a helium balloon that your kids get, they let go of it, right? Or the knot comes loose, because you tied it to your wrist, their wrist, because you know what happens to helium balloons. They go outside in the Wyoming wind, and what happens? It pulls loose, and it floats up into the sky. And what does your child do? besides cry, right? They stand there and they watch it, right? And you stand there and you watch it. Have you ever watched a helium balloon go up in the air? It just goes and it goes and it goes and it goes and it goes and finally it disappears. I wonder if that's what it was like when Jesus ascended into heaven. Because the disciples, it says they were just standing there. Well, they were just standing there looking. It, It could have been for minutes. It could have been, you know, a few minutes. It could have been 20 minutes. They just stood there watching. I mean, what would you do? I mean, he was, he was dead and now he's alive and now he's gone? And then it says a, a couple um, angels came to him and said, what, what are you guys doing? You, you need to go do what Jesus told you to do. And, and they do. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. But Jesus is alive. He's alive. And we know it because Luke is talked to eyewitnesses who saw him alive. And, and Luke was there at the very beginning of the church when all of this is, is happening. I saw a, a commercial on television last night. It, and it was a TurboTax commercial of all things. Maybe you've seen it, but um, it's, it's quite heartwarming in its humanism, put it that way. Because it's all about you. Um, that's what the person says. It, it uses, it says you, 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 which is actually me, or you as you're watching it, right? Um, and, and as it goes through the process of, of the last year, things that you might have experienced, that you might have experienced in the last year. It says you worked hard at your job, and you earned all of that money, and you got all of those things, and, and you made the, the little contact with that sweet little girl down the street happen, and, and you got married, and you're starting a family, and you bought a house, and, and, and you, you maybe even you built a house. And, and it just goes on and on and on and on, and, and it's just like you, 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 you. We can't think that way in 2014. We cannot think that way. It's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus. He is the center. He has to be the center. I've been blessed. You've been blessed. I've been given gifts. Yes, God gives us good and perfect gifts, but it's not about you and me. Let's fight the sin of pride and arrogance this year. Let's not let it take us over. And, and as Christ is the center that brings us to, to this next conclusion, and that's the mission, the mission that Jesus, our center, gives us. Okay, and, and we need to recognize that it's not my mission, it's not your mission, it's His mission. It's His mission. We just get to be a part of it. As we enter 2014, let's get it in our heads that Jesus is in charge and we need to follow His marching orders. 
Now, he gives some specific instructions to the disciples in verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, hey guys, go and wait. I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to stay there and I want you to wait. And trust me, he says, you're going to know when this gift shows up. (laughs) When the Holy Spirit shows up, you will know. You will know, and then, and then I want you to do the rest of what I'm going to say. But the disciples, they always tend to overthink things. And we do too. We, we overthink, we overanalyze, we want to know too much. And, and, and this case is no different. Verse 6, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Okay, is it going to happen now? This kingdom, this earthly kingdom, I'm assuming they're thinking, And Jesus' answer was simple, straightforward, and to the point. He said this to them, verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority. Let's not get caught up in in knowing specific dates and times, Jesus says. Because, quite honestly, there's things that we're not supposed to know, and that's one of them. We can't know it. It will never happen. Let's not get impatient. God knows what He's doing. God, God knows what He's doing. Um... I think this question that the disciples are asking, um, that's discipleship as a sprint talk. You know, discipleship is not a sprint. It is a marathon. And, and I, you, like me, we can get tired of it. We, we can feel like we can't go another day. I, I, I can't, you know, you hear somebody say, well, you know, why don't you just sow some wild oats? And we think, yeah, let's just go do that because I'm tired of living this other life. And the world cries out to you too. It's a waste of time to live this way. You, you don't, it's no fun. Well, I say baloney to that kind of talk, but we need to remember that the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a day in and day out thing. And it's a marathon that's fought on a spiritual level as well as a physical one. Because we can get tired physically. When I got up this morning to come up here to the office, I thought it was on. Um... The, the humidifier we had running in our bedroom quit working at four in the morning. And so my wife was, Sarah was up making lots of noise, trying to get it to work. Kind of put me on edge a little bit. Then I went out to get in the car to come up here and the battery was dead. I thought, oh, of course, this morning, I'm going to talk about a spiritual battle, right? This morning, this is happening. Well, I, I, so then I went out of the garage to the car that was covered with snow and that car started, but the windshield wipers were stuck to the windshield. It's nine degrees out. I just have a jacket. I don't have any gloves. I don't have a hat. I'm just coming up here, right? So I sit there for two minutes waiting for the car to warm up enough to unfreeze the windshield wipers from the window when I finally decided this just isn't going to happen. It's going to take ten minutes to do this, and I don't have this kind of time. So I jumped out, and I, I made it up here. But all that time, I'm thinking... Right? Have you ever been in one of those situations where it's like, if I didn't have bad luck, I wouldn't have any luck at all? And it's like, it's on. We have to remember that there is a spiritual battle happening in our world just as much as there is a physical battle. We have to be conscious of that. And we have to make sure that Jesus Christ is at the center of that. And and there, there are questions that we have that we simply aren't supposed to have answers to. 
So let's rest content this year in, in knowing and trusting the things that God does reveal to us, the things that we see in His Word. And, and, and when it comes to the questions that, that really nobody has an answer to, let's be content with the fact that it's a mystery and be okay with that. Let's seek to know and place our confidence in the things that He's revealed to us. You see, when Jesus was crucified and He rose again and He ascended into heaven, He had accomplished what was necessary to provide for salvation. He was the perfect sacrifice. He conquered sin and death. He rose from the dead. And we are now to, He says, take that message to the world. And that's His message. It's not my message. It's not your message. It's His mission. But He's commanded us to take part in it. Luke goes on in verse 8. But you, well, Jesus goes on. Luke is quoting Him. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you will be my witnesses. His mission for us is that we would be witnesses. That we would testify to what He's done in our life. To to the saving grace and the salvation that He has given us because of our faith in Him. To to the things, the ways that He's changing us. Not how great we are, not how smart and how creative we are, but that we are His witnesses. Let's be His witnesses in 2014. Let's be His witness at work. Let's be His witness in our families. Let's be His witnesses at school. Let's be His witness as we travel and we're on vacation and we drink coffee with a friend at a restaurant. Let's get up in the morning with the thought that we are His witnesses and going through our, and go through our day with that frame of mind. I am His. I am His witness. Today is His. Because we are His. He is not ours. We are His. It's His mission. Finally this morning, let's grasp the fact that Jesus didn't just leave us to fend for ourselves when He ascended into heaven. He didn't say to the disciples as He was floating away, Hey, good luck, you guys. Have a good one. Hope you do all right. Right? That's not what Jesus said. You you see, because there's a moment in time when Jesus was here and He ascended, right? And then there's this big gap of time, uh, more than 2,000 years from that point and beyond, when Jesus will return again. And there's all of this time in between. And Jesus said to the disciples, look, I'm going to give you a gift. I'm leaving and I'm going to return. But you know what? In the meantime, you're going to have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come. And He, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And that promise was fulfilled because next week when we look at chapter 2, we're going to see what happened to the disciples when the Holy Spirit came on them. The power that they received in their lives. I mean, we receive it too. Because we are empowered for the mission. Jesus didn't just say, good luck. He said, here's the command I have you. Oh, and by the way, here's the power to fulfill that command. And He sent us the Holy Spirit. And just like the disciples received it for the first time at the beginning of the church, at salvation, we receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit enters our life and teaches us. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and gives us words as we witness. Have you ever had one of those experiences when you were talking to someone about spiritual things and like stuff just came to your mind? 
And afterwards, you were kind of thinking to yourself, wow, where did that come from? That was awesome. Right? And, and we have to step back and we have to recognize that ain't us. That's the Holy Spirit in us, empowering us to carry out the mission that He has given us. We are in that meantime. Some refer to it as the church age. As we live our lives under Jesus' command to be His witnesses to the very end of the earth and to the very end of the age, He empowers us for that. And evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life and in my, my life is it's a changed life. It's the supernatural strength and power that we receive in our everyday life. It's, it's that peace that passes all understanding. When you, when you have no idea where it comes from, but you're just, you're just content and you recognize that God has it under control, it's the Holy Spirit giving you that in your life. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. It says, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. On salvation, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 5.32 We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Well, we know that we're able to obey Him because we have salvation in Christ and He empowers us with the ability to be obedient to the things that He has done and that He has taught. And we have received the Holy Spirit. And as we live out the year 2014, or at least as much of the year that God gives us, let's live it with our lives centered on Jesus, consciously obeying His command to be His witnesses relying on the power that the Holy Spirit provides. You know, it's interesting to me that I was, as I was looking, maybe you've thought the Holy Spirit is kind of a New Testament thing. Um, but if you go to your Bible software and you search Holy Spirit, you will see it happens all kinds of times in the Old Testament. And, and, and why wouldn't it, right? Because, because we serve a Trinitarian God. One God, yet three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're all three present throughout the course of history from creation until now. In fact, how did Jesus come to become a man on this planet? He was the Holy Spirit. The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and you will become pregnant. The Holy Spirit was the Holy Spirit that led Jesus in the desert to be tempted. It was the Holy Spirit that showed up on the scene when when Jesus was baptized and we have the presence of God the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Himself all in the same place at the same time. I don't understand how that works on a daily basis. But that's one of those amazing mysteries about our incredible God that I'm content with just saying, I don't get it, but that's just the way it is. It's awesome. I don't understand it. My prayer as we enter 2014 as a church is that as we're going to see next week as the, the, the disciples, as the apostles proclaimed as they became witnesses through the power of the Holy Spirit, God added thousands to their number who also put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord. And my prayer for us as a church, for you as an individual, that as we are witnesses to this mission that God, that, that Jesus has given us, that we would see numbers added to the rules of heaven. 
and that many, many people would be saved. That we wouldn't be so wrapped up and tied up in our own lives, on our own problems, and our own struggles. And I get that those are real. But, but that we would consider others better than ourselves and think outside of ourselves and recognize that Jesus is the center of all things and that He would become, His mission would become a part of our life as we live. Now, as we come to the communion table this morning, I want to share a, a final illustration. It comes from the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry website. It's a great illustration of God's incredible forgiveness of our sin. And, and if you're not familiar with communion, maybe you're not, maybe you're new to, to the church, um, we have bread, which represents, which Jesus in, in the Gospels said to the disciples in his last days. He said, guys, when you do this, when you partake of this, and he broke the bread and he, he had them each take a piece and they partook, he said, this represents my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me, he said. And this says that he took the cup. He said, guys, this represents the blood that that has been shed for you. The blood, actually, at that moment in time, that I will shed for you. And we know that Jesus died, and so we know that he shed it all for us. And as we partake of the bread and as we partake of the cup this morning, we worship, we thank, we celebrate this incredible thing that Jesus did. You don't have to be a member of North Hills to participate in communion. We participate in communion as Christ followers, disciples of His. And when we get to that point after I pray and the servers are going to come up and we're going to have three of us standing up here, somebody in the back and somebody in the balcony, I want you to come forward and I... I want you to take a piece of bread and I want you to take a cup and return to your seat with it. And as the worship team plays, I want you to to worship and thank. The first time in this new year that you share, we share together in communion. Partake of the bread first and then the cup when you're ready. Let's, Let's say that I am, let's say that I'm at your house. That, that I come to your house or your, your apartment, wherever you live. And my wife, Sarah, comes with me. We come over, we come to visit you, and um, we're talking about something, and, and I'm talking with my hands, and I reach over, which I've done on occasion. Usually it's cups of coffee that people are holding, but I knock the lamp off of your table onto the floor, and it breaks. And then I find out that this is a special lamp that a dear, that a dear friend gave it to you. And, of course, it's the, it's the lamp that gives light to this part of your living room, and had sentimental value as well. But, but after a moment or two, you realize that the damage is done and you decide that you're going to forgive me for breaking your lamp. Okay, and, and so you say to me, that's all right, David, I forgive you for breaking the lamp, but I need you to give me $100 so that I can replace it. Now, think about it. Is, is, have you truly forgiven me? Have you truly forgiven me? In asking for the $100 after you've just forgiven me, you are requiring a payment. There's a debt, but you have forgiven me. So that's really not forgiveness. When God forgives our sins, He says He will remember them no more. If you forgive me, can you demand payment from the one forgiven? No, because a forgiven debt does not exist. 
Let's say that instead of asking me for the $100, you turn to Sarah and you say, I'll forgive him, um, but in lieu of forgiving him, I need you to pay me $100. Has there truly been forgiveness? You see, there's a problem. The lamp needs to be replaced. And in true forgiveness, then, who is going to pay for the replacement? Who is left? You are left. You're the only other person in the room. Remember, if you've forgiven me the debt, how can the debt, how can payment for that debt be demanded? Now, who has my offense been against? You, right? Who forgives? You. Who pays? You. When we sin, who do we sin against? God, right? Okay, who forgives? God. Who paid the debt? He did. He did. He paid the debt. He took our punishment. And it was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, 4 and 5. Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him and by His wounds we are healed. You see, God is just. He can't let a debt go unpaid. There has to be a sacrifice. And we weren't able to sacrifice ourselves. There needed to be a perfect sacrifice, and He did it. In the mercy of God, we don't get punished. In the grace of God, He gives us something that we don't deserve. It's like, us break, it's like me breaking your lamp, you forgiving me, and giving me $100 as I walk out the door. That's exactly what Jesus did. Even though we are unworthy of salvation, even though we are unworthy of God's love, we are unworthy of mercy, even though we are worthy of wrath, God saved us. And He did so not because of who we are, but because of who He is. Not because of what we do, but because of what He did. We could never, through our own efforts, attain Him. There's only one thing left for us to do. Worship Him. Love Him. Celebrate Him. Let's do that this morning as we celebrate communion together. Ty, come up and start playing. Let me pray as the servers come up. And then you can come forward. Lord Jesus, thank You. Oh, thank You so much. Thank You that You didn't leave us here to fend for ourselves. And Lord, I pray that as we continue through this series, that we would, that we would understand and that we would see more and more what it means to, to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that we would surrender our lives to You as our only hope of salvation as the center of all things. And Lord, this year, 2014, may You be at the center of all that we do, all that we say, the decisions that we make. Oh Lord, help us not to take that back and to rule our own lives. Help us to live with You at the center. Thank You for the bread and the cup and the reminder that You gave us
to remember. In Jesus' name, amen.